When you see someone running into the street and something's coming that's going to hit them, what would you do? Hopefully, all of us would call out to that person, watch out, stop, don't go in the street. We're very concerned about the physical safety of people around us if we have any sense of, I guess you could call it common human decency. And yet, when it comes to seeing similarly problematic issues in the lives of the people of the church, sometimes we are not as ready to step in and address those problems. Why is it so hard for us to warn a fellow Christian who is sinning? Sometimes we don't see the danger, or we don't see how bad the danger is. Going back to the example of someone going in the street, if you see a bicycle coming toward them, they'll get knocked down, they'll get hurt, probably nothing too serious. If you see a Mack truck coming toward them, one of those big ones that, got a, that has a couple of beds pulled behind it, that's serious, right? The problem is, when it comes to sin, we see sin like the bicyclist that's going to run into the person crossing the street. It might hurt him a little bit. It's not that big of a deal. What we should do is recognize that sin is more like the Mack truck. It's not just going to cause a little bit of trouble. It can wreck someone's life. Sometimes we selfishly think, oh, it's not worth the effort. I'll look bad if I say something. I've been there. I've done that. I came out okay. That person won't talk to me if I say something. We put our own feelings or convenience above their good. Sometimes we say, somebody else will probably see that they're crossing the street and going to get run over, so somebody else will take care of that problem. The trouble comes when we all assume somebody else is doing something about it, right? And so whether the reason for us failing to warn other people of a coming danger is because we don't see how bad it is, because we're concerned about our feelings more than their good, or because we think someone else will handle it, none of these are good reasons for us to avoid warning fellow Christians about sin. Sin is dangerous. It is worth the effort to deal with. And it is a mistake to assume that someone else was going to take care of it. So what three things do we need to do in response to the reality of sin in our lives as Christians? The first, I think, is to watch out for sinning Christians. Because if we don't recognize that there is a problem, we're never going to do anything about it. In what way are we supposed to watch out? Well, we see in verse 6, particularly starting, that we need to watch out for sinning Christians. And sinning Christians are those who are ignoring truth that they already know. We see this in verse 6, and then we see it again in verses 10 through 13. It says in verse 6, Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. In what ways were they demonstrating that they weren't following teaching that they already knew? Well, verse 10. Christians shouldn't demand for others to meet basic needs. Look at verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, he is not to eat either. So in terms of this requirement, who is responsible for meeting my basic needs of food, shelter, clothing, those sorts of things? The answer is, first and foremost, I'm responsible to work to provide for those needs. And that's Paul's point in this verse. If you don't work, then you don't automatically deserve to eat. 
Now, we recognize that there are circumstances when people come to a point and they're not able to work or provide for some particular need themselves. So what then is the next place that someone in that sort of situation is supposed to turn? Well, not specifically from this passage, but from Paul's teaching in other passages. I think we would see in a passage like 1 Timothy 5.9, if there's a widow, whose responsibility is it first and foremost to care for her before the church? Her family. And I think the same can be said for other people in, by way of application, other people in difficult circumstances. If you can't meet your need because of something outside your control, then your family ideally should step up and help you. I think this also applies to orphans. Now, obviously, if the orphan has no extended family either, then that's a, a bigger problem and someone else is going to have to step in and meet that need. But if there's someone who's an orphan, ideally their family, their extended family, is going to care for them. But then, there is also the reality that the church is called to meet needs. The church is to care for members. We see this in Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10. We're supposed to do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. We see this illustrated in the terms of sharing God's blessing. For example, in Acts 2, Acts 4, and Acts 5, the early church had things which they possessed in common. They made sure that people's needs were met. And some of that, I think, was a function of the society in which they lived, in which there were people who were living day to day and hour by hour as far as whether they were going to have food to put on their tables. There were those who were slaves. There were those who were in desperate straits. But I don't think that the fact that we have generally more in our country necessarily excludes at least the attitude, if not the action, of being concerned and caring for one another's needs. And what form does that caring take? Well, first of all, it should be willing, not grudging. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says, God loves a cheerful giver. Sometimes that verse has been used in the context of giving to the church. But in reality, Paul used it in the context of a special offering taken up to meet the needs of the poor in Jerusalem. He says, if God has put it in your heart to give, then give. Because God is pleased if you give willingly and not because someone's forcing you to do it. Secondly, the nature of this sharing of God's blessing often was sacrificial. 2 Corinthians 8, 1-5 talks about those who, out of their deep poverty, shared to help others who were in a similar strait. So sometimes they'll say, well, I'm not going to help anybody else unless I'm really, really well off myself. But there are times when, as a church family, even if I may not have very much, I can help someone else. And God uses that to encourage that person. And, and obviously the goal is to meet needs. The goal is not that everyone has the exact same amount of money in their bank account, the same size house, the same amount of stuff, all of those sorts of things. That's not the goal. The goal is that God has blessed this person over here and this person is in a time of need. This person ought to say, I don't have this simply because I worked hard for it. I have it because of God's blessing. So if this person is lacking in some basic need, I'm going to help them. That's the point that James makes, right? If a brother or sister is in need of food and shelter, and you say, hey, hope that works out for you, I'll pray for you, and you don't do anything that's a concrete act of love, James says, your faith is severely lacking in the works that show it to be true faith. Again, the goal is not 
that everybody has a brand new car and everybody has a really fancy house and all these sorts of things if there happens to be someone who's really well off in the church. That's not the goal. It's not, it's not socialism where everybody has the exact same stuff. It's rather, if we see someone who is lacking basic essentials, we should say, what can I do at least in some way to help meet that need? So I'm responsible to meet my needs. Family is responsible to help if there's a gap that's due to unforeseen circumstances and, and, uh, and just things that are outside of someone's control. The church ought to have a sense of help. And then there's also the question of government. Now, this is not a mandate in Scripture, but a, a, just a comparison of what we see in Scripture versus where our government is today. So let me just develop it this way. The main job of government is to protect the innocent and discourage evil. That's the basic function of government. Why do we have government? So that people don't go around committing things that are sinful and no one stops them from doing it because then what happens? It just keeps happening more and more and more. So government's basic job is to restrain evil. Not necessarily to meet every need. But Paul's example, for example, when he was in Acts uh, 16 and in Acts 21 were two occasions where Paul was being beaten. What did he do? He appealed to the authorities and said, what you're doing is wrong. These are my rights as a citizen. So what are you going to do about it? Now, it's interesting to me that Paul did that after he received the beating, I think in, in part in Acts 16, because he wanted to have an opportunity for the gospel. And they couldn't very well say, you have to leave right away if they had just broken Roman law and were going to be in huge trouble. And so Paul saw that as an opportunity for the gospel. And yet he did appeal to his basic rights as a citizen of Rome. Along those same lines, and perhaps by way of parallel, I don't think that it is wrong if our government has said, here are the things that are offered to you, and here are the criteria that you have to meet. If you meet those criteria then I don't think it's wrong to take advantage of those opportunities. Now, we could argue whether not being beaten is the same as being provided help with food and medical insurance and all those sorts of things, but I think there are parallels. So who's responsible for my needs? Myself, my family, my church, and our society at least, and following the basic criteria, the government? So what are some questions that, that I think are helpful to think about, questions at least that I think about, when someone, for example, comes to the church and says, hey, can you help me out? Here are four questions. Is this person able and willing to work? Because sometimes someone is able and willing to work, and they just don't want to. Secondly, does this person have family that should be helping? Because if, if we as a church see someone who's not able and willing to work, has some kind of need, but they have family that says, you know what, we could help out dad or mom or aunt or uncle or whatever, but we really don't care. Are we helping or hurting that person by taking that responsibility off their family? Now maybe you come to a point and you say, well, they can't do it, their family can't or won't do it, and to a certain extent we can't change that. I think another question I come to is, is this person a church member? Because at the end of the day, I think our first and primary responsibility is to one another. If there's someone in our church family that has a need, we need to meet that need before we need to meet the need of someone who just walks in off the street and says, hey, I need this, these things. Because God has called us to watch out for one another. We're part of a family. And yes, we should have grace and compassion toward everyone, 
But that starts with our church family, along with perhaps a parallel line of if we're not giving the gospel to people around us, you know, we can say, oh, we're, we're really excited about missions. But are we really excited about missions if we're not taking the gospel to people right around us? It starts with the people that are closest to us. And then fourthly, has this person looked for help from other places that offer help? Because at the end of the day, the, the resources that we have individually or as a church are limited. And yet there are places where people can go for help. And if they haven't taken advantage of those, then I would encourage that person to, to seek help in those ways. But if someone, if we, if we run through those list of questions and the answers are this person can't do it, this person's family won't help them, this person uh, is potentially is a church member and, 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 and has helped and, and, and we've tried to help them through some of these other means, then I would say we should definitely try to help them. And that last question really has a lot more to do with people outside the church coming in because sometimes people from outside the church come in and they haven't, there's, there's a bunch of places that they could go and they say, well, it's easier because churches tend to be compassionate. We're just going to sort of take advantage of them. It's a challenging thing to address this question of needs and who's supposed to meet them and when. And it takes a great deal of wisdom. As a church family, our first response should be, we're going to help each other out. Our first responsibility individually is, if I want to eat, I need to work hard. Others, family, church, and so forth, may help. But, but Paul is stressing here our own responsibility. Why? Why does Paul stress our own responsibility? Because that seems harsh. That seems like... Uh, if someone needs to eat, they need to eat. Why would Paul say, don't let them eat if they're not working? And the reason is this. Neglecting our responsibilities often leads to sin. Well, why do you say that? Well, verse 11, we are called to avoid laziness that leads to meddling. We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Potentially, this was a misunderstanding of truth. In these letters, Paul talks to the Thessalonians about different truths about the end times. So it's possible some of the people heard the things Paul was saying about the end times and thought something like this. Paul has said Jesus is coming back. Jesus could come back soon. I'm going to sort of sit here and wait for Jesus to come back. I'm not going to work because Jesus is coming back. Whether that's what they were thinking or not, that's one possibility. But even if that's what they were thinking, is that a right response? No, because if they understood what Paul was saying, Paul was saying, Jesus is coming back, he could come back soon, but you don't know when he's coming back, so you wait for a son from heaven, but that doesn't mean that you drop everything else in the meantime. Why? Because part of the practical result of saying, well, I'm not going to work, is that it usually leads us into sin. Gossip, meddling, being a busybody. Someone who says, I don't, I'm not, I have so much free time that not only can I worry about the things that are going on in my life, I can worry about the things that are going on in everybody else's life. And I can help them solve all of their problems by creating new problems for them. Uh, that's what a busybody is like. They know lots of things about other people, but a lot of times their own lives aren't in order themselves. And I think that we see that, that development from a general problem in verse 11, leading an undisciplined life, 
doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. Because if our lives are undisciplined, that in and of itself is not immediately and automatically a sin, but a specific symptom may be that we don't do any work to support ourselves. And oftentimes, the doing no work, stemming from the leading an undisciplined life, leads to a specific sin like meddling in everyone else's business. And so what does Paul say? Christians ought to support themselves. Verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 12. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And this is where this idea of people who are sinning are ignoring truth they already know. Because if you think back to 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, Paul had already told them, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So what's he saying? I taught you when I was there. I told you in my last letter. And now I'm reminding you again. So do they have any excuse to say I didn't know what I was supposed to do? No, they're ignoring truth that they already know. And the truth specifically is support yourself. Work hard, eat your own bread. Even though Christ is returning and we ought to be looking for His return, it's not an excuse to be lazy in the meantime. And then he develops it further and he says, keep doing good. Verse 13, as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Maybe it wasn't that they said Jesus is coming back and so we're really looking forward to it and we're, so we're going to stop working and wait for Him to come back. Maybe it was they just got tired of doing the things they knew that they were supposed to do. And Paul says, don't grow tired, don't grow weary of doing good, keep doing good. Where does this start? Particularly with fellow Christians. Because at some level, it would be selfish for us to take advantage of other Christians through laziness. If someone in the early church had said, hey, I know that this guy is really generous and he's going to sell his property and he's going to help me out. But the reason that I need the help is because I'm not willing to do the things I'm supposed to do. That's selfish, because what's he doing? He's taking it away from someone who genuinely can't support themselves simply because he's not willing to do what he's supposed to do. We should do good as a motivation so that we are able to, to give. Why do we work? We work to meet our basic needs, but it doesn't stop there. We work so that we can also give to those who have need. And that's the, the transformation that Christ works in our hearts and lives from an attitude that says, what can I get from everybody else? What can I get as much as possible? I want to get, and I want to get, and I want to grasp, and I'm greedy, and I want things, to an attitude that says, God gave me everything. I don't deserve any of it. And God gave it to me so that I can help others who have some time of trouble. Those are two completely different attitudes. And Paul is saying, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary of doing the things that you know you're supposed to do. Keep at it. Continue your sanctification from selfishness to love. Stick with it. The motivation is central. It's not at the end of the day about what you have. It is possible to be greedy if you are a millionaire. It's possible to be greedy if you have absolutely nothing. It's possible to be greedy if you have something really nice and you go to someone, someone's house or your, uh, uh, someone's work or whatever else and you're like, I have all of these things, but I don't have that thing that that person has, so I really, really want that. 
the key thing here that I think Paul is getting at is what's your motivation? Don't grow weary of doing good. Why? Because it's for God. It's not for me. It's for God. It's not so I can go back to a life of selfishness, but a life of giving. It's not something where I stop uh, doing what I know I need to do because we have to keep pressing on. But not only do sinning Christians ignore truth that they already know, Paul's told them in person, he's told them in uh, the last letter, he tells them in this letter, not only are they ignoring truth they already know, they're also ignoring godly examples. We see that, saw this in verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, godly examples are discipline. You have to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined example among you. Why? Why is it important that godly examples are disciplined? First of all, to serve as a pattern. What is my life supposed to look like? Watch that guy. Look at her life. Follow godly examples, and the godly examples set a pattern. Godly examples also exclude excuses, because if they're doing what God has told them to do, I can't look at them and say, oh, I was just following that person. I was just doing what they did. But if what they're doing is disciplined and what I'm doing is undisciplined, I can't make that excuse, honestly, right? So godly examples are supposed to be disciplined according to verse 7. Godly examples are also willing to give up their rights for the sake of the truth being clear. We see this in verses 8 and 9. He says, We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day to not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have a right... What did Paul teach them? Paul taught, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9, he said, workers deserve wages. This is how the world works. If you work, then it's, it's right and reasonable to expect to be paid. He said, but I'm willing to give up that right for the sake of ministry. He says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 15 and following. He says, I could ask these churches that I'm ministering in to support me. And they should support those who are serving in them. But Paul was so concerned about his foundational role in establishing all of these churches and about clarity of the gospel that he said, I'm willing to give up my genuine right to be supported because I don't want there to be any question when I come to these churches of, is Paul coming to us to get money or is Paul coming to us to minister to us? couple of points of application. Is it wrong for a church to pay their pastor? No, but he ought to be diligent at the work that is being done. Is it wrong for someone who is doing some kind of ministry to say, I'm not going to accept payment? No, if, if that person is convinced that it would be confusing to the people to whom he's ministering to accept uh, payment from them in some kind, then that person can give that up. Maybe that person says, I'm going to go minister to these people, and these people have been burned time and again by past preachers or by you know, televangelist-type people. I was watching a video the other day where this guy was, was just going to town against people who take advantage. They say, well, if you send me this money, God's going to give you more money. And so the guy said, all right, I'm going to try this system. Now, he didn't believe in it, and they'd probably say, well, that's the out. He sent like $500, and he got back like 6 bucks. 
Did they, were they lying to him? They were lying to him. Maybe, they, maybe someone says, I'm going to go minister to a group of people, and that's their, been their experience. They've been ripped off by people on TV who said, send us your money. And he says, at least starting out, I'm not going to accept any money from them because I don't want there to be any confusion about am I like those people that have lied to them and cheated them and taken advantage of them. The goal, of course, should be to earn trust, to move past that, to do, as Paul says, where the, where the church is supporting the pastor and, and things can move forward in a normal way. But Paul said, I'm going around, I'm doing foundational ministry, I don't want there to be any confusion about why I'm doing it. Connected to this, I think we have to ask ourselves, are there conflicts of interest in the way that we approach things in the church? Um, there's a trend in our society today for moms who are at home to have some sort of secondary business, and that's not bad. I do have concerns because I've been to churches where somebody is selling uh, some particular brand of product, and you see that person in the hallway, and there's this question in the back of your mind. Is this person going to talk to me because it's going to help build their sales line, or is this person talking to me because they genuinely want to minister to me? I had to think about this when I transitioned to pastoral ministry from doing IT work because there were people in the church for whom I was fixing computers and I said, you know what, if I'm going to be visiting this person in the hospital and then I'm going to be working for them over here, I feel like that might create some confusion of, is this person spending time with me because uh, he wants he wants me to call him when my computer breaks down or is this person spending time with me because he genuinely wants to minister to me? And so I think that's something each of us has to examine. Are the things that we're doing, is there any sort of conflict of interest? Is there ever anything confusing to the gospel, to ministry relationships in the way that we approach different business ventures and opportunities that we're involved with? Coming back to Paul's larger point, we need to watch out for sinning Christians. The specific sin in our passage was rejecting known truth and taking it down even more specifically, rejecting known truth that says, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Don't be lazy in a busybody. Work hard and take care of yourself and live a quiet life so that you can serve other Christians and be a good testimony to those outside the church. That's the specific point that Paul is making. But how do we respond to this sin or to any sin? Let's go back through some of these verses, 11 to 13, and look at how we are to confront sinning Christians. So first of all, watch out for sinning Christians. Second of all, confront sinning Christians. Verse 11, I think, teaches us that we need to identify the sin. Paul says, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So what's the sinful behavior? The sinful behavior or the symptom was acting like busybodies. Gossiping, meddling, just wandering around and stirring up trouble. Paul says that's the sin that needs to be dealt with. But if you dealt with that sin, and you didn't ask yourself, why is this sin happening, is the sin going to probably keep happening? Yes. So what would be the next, what's the underlying cause of the acting like busybodies? The underlying cause was they weren't doing any work. They had too much free time. So Paul says, they're doing no work. And so I think it's helpful not just to consider what is the symptom, but also what's the immediate cause, what's the circumstances that are contributing to this sin. Now, a parallel example. 
if I get upset with somebody and I yell at them in anger, that's a sin. If part of the reason that I yell at them in anger is because I have chosen for a week to stay up late every night and not get the sleep that I need because I was doing something I really wanted to do, is it going to be easier or harder for me to stop doing that sin if I keep being undisciplined in this other area of my life? It's going to be harder. Does this make an excuse for me to do the sin? No. But at the same time, if there's all of these things I'm doing that are contributing to an environment where it's really easy for me to sin, I need to deal with those things. So, acting like a busybody, sinful. Stop doing that. All right, take a step back here. Why is that person acting like a busybody? Because they have too much free time in their hands. Why is free time a bad thing? It's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a great blessing. But the problem is that most of us find it difficult to use it well. If our lives are not scheduled and organized and, and we know what's happening, that it's easy to say, hey, I've got the day off. What did you do on your day off? Not a whole lot. And that's not always bad. There are times when we need rest. And yet at the same time, if our lives are just full of nothing much at all because we're undisciplined, we're generally going to get ourselves into trouble. Somebody said one time that not much happens profitable between the hours of midnight and 4 a.m. If you work a night shift, a different story. But as a general rule, if you work during the day and then you just stay up really late and there's not really a good reason to do it, you're probably going to just waste time. You're going to be uh, tired the next day, those sorts of things. Uh, just as an aside, this is why uh, there was a trend in church youth groups for a while of we're going to do these all-night activities and then send the kids home. In my mind, those are bad ideas for a number of reasons. A, because who wants to be supervising people in the middle of the night when they're cranky and tired and, 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 and not getting along with each other? And B, because the next day is worthless. What are they going to do? They're going to go home. They're going to sleep. You know, Again, there's no biblically mandated schedule. But if I am not doing the things I'm supposed to be doing, if I'm doing no work at all, it's going to lead to me doing a specific and clear sinful behavior sooner or later. But then we can maybe take a step back and say, well, the, the specific symptom or the, the immediate cause of being a busybody was not doing any work. But the larger problem, the, the underlying foundational issue was leading an undisciplined life. And what does leading an undisciplined life look like? Leading an undisciplined life is something where we say, I know that there's things I'm supposed to do. I don't feel like doing them. I know I should uh, pay my bills. I know I should uh, go get my oil changed on my car. I know I should, whatever it might be. And we're like, oh, but I don't feel like doing that. Or, or we never plan ahead for anything. We say, you know what, if I... Um, I know that this thing is coming up, so to get ready for it, this thing has to happen here, and this thing has to happen here. Proverbs says the naive just sort of stumbles through life, being surprised by everything because he never looks down the path to see what's going to happen. Living an undisciplined life looks like that. Is the naive person automatically sinful in every case? No, but he's going to get into sin more often than he should because he's not thinking ahead about anything. 
So if I'm being a busybody, gossiping, lying, causing disunity in the church, that's clearly sin. If I'm not working, it may or may not be a sin. I'm not saying it's sinful to be retired. I'm not saying you have to work 80 hours a week. But we should do something useful with our time. God made us to work. God didn't make us to do nothing. If the cause of the specific sin and the potential occasion of sin is a general pattern of life that, has, that, that never forces ourselves to do anything we don't want to do, that's something also that we have to deal with. Sometimes it's not as clear-cut as that. Sometimes we can't say, this person is a busybody because they're not working, and the underlying issue is because they're undisciplined. Sometimes because you don't know a person that well, and so we might think that someone's undisciplined and it just the circumstances of a particular week. We might think that we know the circumstances of the occasion of the sin, but we don't really know them that well. So sometimes it's a lack of knowledge. Sometimes it's a just, uh, we're just wrong about it. So we have to be careful about assuming that we know everything about the cause of a specific sin. But if there's a sin, we have to confront it. And if there's something that says, hey, this is at least possibly why this sin is happening, I don't think it's bad for us to say to that person, hey, I think that you keep doing this because of this. And then I think we even have to be a little bit more tentative about this because it's possible for us to misidentify the patterns of someone's life. Maybe because we're not around them in enough circumstances. Maybe because uh, our perspective is flawed in some way. So this we can be very clear about. Stop it. It's wrong. This we have to be a little bit more tentative about. I think you're doing the wrong thing because of this. And this we can say, hey, I could be wrong on this, but it looks like that sin is happening because you're putting yourself in this situation and that situation is being created by this general pattern to your life. So again, our, our, our confidence in what the problem is is tied to how clear it is and, and is tied to Scripture, but I think it's helpful for us to consider. How do we respond to the sin? Not just say, here's the problem, but urge the sinner to repent. Because it's really easy to say, here's a problem, and then not do anything about it, right? It's really easy for us to say, here's a problem, but I don't want to talk to this person because it's going to be uncomfortable. But that's not loving. If the reason for me failing to point out sin, failing to speak truth to someone is it will cause me problems, who am I thinking about? Me. Remind that person again of truth. Paul did this, right? He said it verbally to them. He said it in a letter. He's saying it now in a second letter. So it's not like the first time you see someone doing something like, well, they should know better. I'm not going to say anything of what the thing is that they're doing wrong. Remind them again of the truth. We've needed many reminders. That person is going to need reminders. And then look for signs of repentance. If you urge the person to repent, how do you know if they've done it? When they stop doing the thing that's sinful. Because I can say that I've repented, but if I keep doing the thing that God has told me not to do, I'm not really repenting. I'm saying, oh, I, that was bad because I want to get the person off my back or I want to get rid of the guilt that I feel about it. Genuine repentance means turning away from the thing that's wrong. And then I think our attitude that we should consider, perhaps first, but also at this point, is be humble and watch out for your own sin. I think we see this in verse 13. You don't grow weary of doing good in the sense of 
Don't use their sin as an excuse for you to quit doing what you need to do. Hey, this person is being a busybody and they're getting away with it, so that means I can be a busybody. No, I can't say I can sin in this way because this person is sinning. Don't think that you're above sin yourself. When we come to a situation of sin, am I sinning? Yes. Does that mean that I have no right to speak to this person? No, but I have to do it humbly. I have to do it carefully. I have to recognize that I can be tempted too. So watch out for sinners. Paul says, keep away. Here's the characteristics. Keep away from them. Don't act like them. Confront them. But what's the goal? It's not just that we say, here's the person who's having a problem. It's not just that we say, stop having the problem and here's maybe some ways to stop doing it. But it's also, we want the relationship to be fixed. Restore sinning Christians. We see this in verses 14 and 15. We restore by taking sin seriously. That, that sounds like a contradiction at first. Take special note of that person. Do not associate with them so that he will be put to shame. Well, let's say that someone says, okay, here's what the sin is, and I've talked to that person about it, and they're not showing immediate repentance. If I'm really concerned that that person has a right relationship with God and a right relationship with everyone else in the church, I don't say, oh, I've talked to him about it once, so my responsibility is done. I say, I evaluate what's going on. Did the person obey after the warning or the reminder? If they didn't, don't let it slide, he says. Take special note of that person. So it's not just I do say something once, but that I follow up and I say, How's it going? Is it, is it, you still doing this? You're not doing this? I observe. Did that person listen to the encouragement to obey? If they don't, can I just say, oh, I'm just going to pretend like everything's okay? No. Paul says in verse 14, do not associate with him. Now the question is, in what sense do you not associate with him? There's some argument. Did it mean that they could come to church so they could hear preaching, but that they couldn't take part in the Lord's Supper because they weren't in a right standing with the church? Did it mean don't talk to them at all? What did it mean don't associate with them? I think at the end of the day, this is the, the, the simple truth that Paul is getting at. If someone is saying, I'm a Christian, and they're acting in a sinful way, and they're confronted about the sin and they don't want to do anything about it, you can't pretend like everything's okay. So in your conversations with that person, in your associations with that person, until they've dealt with that issue, we can't just say, oh, everything's great, everything's wonderful, everything's fine. You're acting like a good brother or sister in Christ. Why? Because to ignore the sin is not to seek God's goal, which is restoration, and it's to say sin is okay, which God is not okay with. What's the goal? Work toward his repentance. My act of changing the way I interact, not associating with them, not treating them like everything is okay, is for what end? So that this person will repent, so that they will be put to shame. Because if the way that we are talking to someone, if the way that we're spending time with someone changes, that's supposed to make them think. That's supposed to make them say, I can't keep acting this way. This is wrong. God's not pleased with this. And so we have to be willing to do that. But we also need to be willing to restore by treating graciously. Look at verse 15. 
Don't regard as an enemy, but admonish as a, as a brother. Keep this person in the category of family. And assume the best as long as possible. There comes a time when it becomes so abundantly clear that this person has no desire to follow after God that we can't say you're a Christian. They just, they sin, they don't care, we talk to them, and nothing is done. At some point you have to say, this person is not acting like a Christian, and as best we can tell, they're just not. But at the same time, and we've all been at this point, it doesn't always happen immediately that we turn away from the sin that someone has confronted us about. So there's this mix of patience as well as a concern to say, we're not going to say sin is okay. Sin is not okay. Turn away from it. But also allow time for God to work and convict and change that person's heart and life. I think we have to ask ourselves at this point, how does this passage fit with Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5? Because those are two other passages that deal with issues of sin and how we, how we address them. All three of them deal with discipline. I think probably we need to step back and think, discipline is not just corrective. That's what we're talking about here. Here's a problem. Let's fix it. Discipline is also preventative. Hey, here's how God wants us to live. Ideally, if we're doing a lot of the here's how God wants us to live, we won't have to do as much as a, now here's a problem, let's fix it. But sometimes you have to do both. I just want to stress that there are two parts to it. Matthew 18, how, do they how does it describe the sinner? It describes the sinner as when your brother sins, until he's put out of the church, treat him as a Christian. Even the putting him out of the church is supposed to be something that will hopefully help him to see his need to trust Christ. Because what does it say? Treat him as a tax collector and a sinner. What was their attitude supposed to be toward tax collectors and sinners? You're not a Christian, but here's the gospel. Believe it. So if someone is sinning in such a way that it comes to the point of being put out of the church, even in that, we don't treat them harshly or angrily or hatefully. We treat them as someone who needs to be saved because they're acting like they're not. What about 1 Corinthians 5? 1 Corinthians 5 says, here's a guy who says he's a Christian, he's not acting like a Christian, and you haven't dealt with the problem. Deal with the problem, put him out of the church again, so that going out into the world and being excluded from the church and all of these sorts of things will help him to wake up and see he can't keep living that way. Is this passage saying something different? No, I think it's just talking about a different stage in the process. We're still in a stage of treat him as a brother. There's a sin. It's been identified. It's been confronted. It hasn't been repented of yet. We haven't got to the point of saying this person has to leave the church. Whatever stage we're at in this process, the goal is that the person is restored to a right relationship with God and other people in the church. So we have to keep that in mind. And we have to also acknowledge the sad reality that sometimes there is no repentance, there is no restoration, and the only thing that we can conclude is this person professed Christ but never really knew Him, like it says in 1 John 1. They went out from us showing that they were never really of us. So when someone sins, how do we respond? First of all, we have to have our eyes open watching for sin. Not like in a, 
in a creepy way, like hiding behind the pews and, and standing in the hallways. I'm trying to catch somebody doing something. But just an awareness. There are cases in my own life when I have been blind to the fact that someone's life is falling apart and I should have known about it. And I didn't care enough about that person. I wasn't around that person enough to know that their life was falling apart, to know that there was a sin problem. We have to be spending time with one another, talking to one another, knowing enough about one another so that when sin crops up, we can say, hey, what's going on? And sometimes it's just that person had a bad day, that person didn't get enough sleep, that person had whatever going on, and everything's okay. And sometimes things start popping up because their lives are falling apart. Do we ignore those warning signs or do we watch out for sinning Christians? If we think there's a problem, do we walk up to them and say, hey, seems like this is going on. If God's working in that person's heart and life, sooner or later they're going to say, yeah, I did wrong. Thank you for pointing it out to me. And what's our goal? What's our motivation? What's the thing we're driving toward? It's for them to be restored. Not so we can score points and be like, oh, I'm better than you. But rather so we can say, here's a problem. Stop doing it. Here's maybe some reasons that it's happening. Here's some truth from God about it. Get reconnected with the church. Get plugged back in. Keep moving forward in your Christian life. That's the goal. But it's easy for us to look at it as, oh, that's harsh, or that's unkind, or, or I don't really want to do that. God has called us to be concerned about the lives of one another because it's a serious issue. There is at least the possibility that someone is sinning in a particular way because they are rejecting the faith that they are professing. Why is that? Why do I say that? Because he says, not according to the tradition which you received from us. This involved both Paul's word and his example. Maybe it's just that they weren't following Paul's example and the example of godly people, or maybe it's that they've rejected core truth about who God is. If that's the possibility that someone's in that state, shouldn't we be concerned enough about that to talk to them? It's not at that point just a question of, here's a problem that needs to be overcome so they can move forward in their Christian growth. It could be this person may not know God and may be headed for hell. If we have no concern enough about a person to figure that out, that's pretty selfish of us, right? But even as Christians, we all sin in many cases, and sometimes we are blind to our own faults. And we need someone to lovingly come alongside us and say, here's something that seems like the way you're sinning, here's what God says, turn away from it, get back and move forward. Are we willing to do the hard task of dealing with sin in our own lives, but also in the lives of those around us, so that God is honored, the church is healthy, and that people know where they stand before God? If we're not, we don't see the danger, or we're being selfish, or we're saying it's somebody else's job. And those are all three bad excuses. Closing out the, the book... Verses 16 through 18. Who will give us the strength to do this? Verse 16. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. God is the one who's doing the work. God is the one who makes peace where there's not peace through repentance of sin, through restoration of fellowship, through creating unity in the church body. 
How were they to know that this was something that they were supposed to follow? Paul says in verse 17, I write this greeting with my own hand. This is a distinguishing mark at every letter. This is the way I write. Some people take that to mean that Paul signed the letter. Some people take that to mean that Paul wrote in a particular way. I think it could have been both, that Paul had a particular style and this was what his signature looked like. So it wasn't just something made up. This was a genuine letter from Paul that the Thessalonians were supposed to take heart and, and, and follow. Again, what underlies all these things? Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. How do you respond to sinners? Look for them, confront them, seek their restoration. How do you respond to your own sin? If you're the one that this is happening to, how do you respond to your own sin? Accept the admonition, repent of the sin, be restored. The only way to find forgiveness of sin and lasting change is, of course, to have a relationship with Christ. That's where it all starts. So I don't want to assume that that's the case for everyone. If we have a relationship with Christ, though, we ought to have a concern about others who know Christ in such a way that if there's a problem, we're willing to address it and see God work to take care of the problem so that we can bring glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, these are difficult truths from the perspective that it's never comfortable to talk to someone about something that they're doing wrong. Whether you're um, in charge of someone at work, whether it's a peer, whether it's a child. There's so many things that we would rather do than talk to people about what the problem is. But we do not help ourselves or anyone else by ignoring problems in our lives or in other people's lives. Because they just get worse. Lord, you've called us to show love by being concerned about one another enough that if we see a problem or we think there's a problem, we say something. Sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes it's not as serious as we think it is. Sometimes it's more serious than we think it is. But Lord, you've called us to at least watch out for one another, to address problems, to seek that those would be dealt with and that you would be honored and your church would grow and that we individually would be better related to one another and more importantly to you. Lord, help us to do this well in a spirit of love, in a spirit of seeking your glory. Lord, help us to do this faithfully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.